And thank you for listening to the history of World War II podcast, episode 274, The End of British Malaya. Last time, the Japanese 25th Army had been able to penetrate 16 miles, or 25 kilometers, through British lines that had been deemed impressively situated, in a defensive sense, in a matter of hours. Now Kuala Lumpur was open to attack, as was its airfield, but more than that, there was only the area of Johor left before Singapore itself was open to direct attack. Something had to give. And Sir General Archibald Wavell, the head of Abdicom, was determined that it would be the Japanese who gave. Pulling back the shattered 11th Indian Division, the 9th Indian wasn't in much better shape, he would place the 8th Australian Infantry Division, led by Major General H. Gordon Bennett, in the path of the oncoming attackers. But Wavell knew it was also time to change the man at the top. Again. When the war started, Major General David Murray Leone, Divisional Commander of Indian Three Corps, had been in charge, which made sense, as it was putting up the main defense in the north. But after northern Malaya was lost and in record time, command was then given to Brigadier Archibald Paris. But after the disaster at Slim River Bridge, Wavell wanted new blood. Hence, Major General Bennett would be given the chance to salvage this, so far, lamentable campaign. Bennett was in command of the Australian Imperial Forces on Malaya, and though he had seen fighting at Gallipoli and on the Western Front in the Great War, there seemed to be something off about him. Either way, he was passed over for command of three Australian divisions that were sent to the Middle East. But finally, in February of 1941, he was given the 8th Australian Division and sent to Malaya. And perhaps showing why he had been passed over for several commands, right away Bennett failed to get along with his fellow officers. As for the British... That was understandable, in a certain light. But Bennett failed to find anyone to respect, or, frankly, anyone as capable as himself. So when the fighting started, Bennett did not hesitate to complain about the British and Indian soldiers who were being driven back from northern Malaya. And this harping did not let up. Through Operation Crow Call, the Lost Airfields, the Battles of Kota Baru, Jitra, Kampar, Slim River, and the loss of the Prince of Wales, and Repulse. And whether he convinced Wavell that he was the right man for the job, or perhaps the overall commander was tired of the nagging, he gave Bennett the opportunity he craved. Per Wavell, Percival ordered the Indian Three Corps to pull back into Johor. The 8th Australian would move up to Sagamat, specifically to Gamas, a town on the northern end of the Sagamat district, itself the northernmost of Johor, so the Japanese, when they came, would be engaged by fresh troops. This fact alone was counted as a good beginning. As the 8th Australian Infantry Division moved into northwestern Johor, the 9th Indian Infantry Division and the 45th Indian Infantry Brigade were put together to form West Force. This was under Bennett as well, as it would be protecting Johor's east coast. 
This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. But the British and Commonwealth forces weren't the only ones reshuffling men and getting ready for the next phase of the war. The 21st Infantry Regiment of the Japanese 5th Division had come ashore at Singora on January 8th, the same day Percival had been counting up how many men of the 11th Indian he had left after the battle at Slim River. What's more, the Japanese 5th Guards Regiment was in central Malaya by January 10th. These two forces would help when it came to attack Johor proper. Lieutenant General Tomoyuki Yamashita commander of the 25th Army, also wanted to plan an amphibious landing behind the enemy's front, like he had done during the Battle of Kampar, but this time he wanted it carried out on the east shore at Endau, which would be in northern Johor and thus just behind the enemy's front. But several things had to come together before that could take place. For now, Yamashita rested the men of the 5th Division at Seraban, and it was a well-deserved rest. They had carried out his plan of relentless attacks and speed to perfection. Seraban is a town about 45 miles southeast of Kuala Lumpur, on the main road. The Japanese entered and occupied that city during the afternoon of January 11th. There had been no resistance. With this city taken, the Japanese were less than 200 miles, or 320 kilometers, from Singapore. Some Indian troops were nearby, but were told not to engage, but to continue retreating after blowing bridges and other crossings. During the night of January 13th, the remaining troops of the 11th Indian Division passed through the new defensive line, manned by troops of West Force. As for the last part of Yamashita's plan, he ordered the Imperial Guards Division to continue moving down the west coast. As they were not being challenged, they should still be fresh when battle was joined. Besides, should the guards get as far south as Yamashita believed they would, his men would be in a perfect position to either begin to turn the enemy's left flank or pitch off the center part of their line to destroy it. 
either would get him closer to Singapore. As for the East Coast, the Japanese 18th Division was coming down that way, having taken Kutan and its airfield on January 3rd. But it would be going too far to say that the attackers completely owned the skies. What British planes were left were being husbanded in Singapore, and when the war over Johor started, they would make themselves known. With Major General Gordon Bennett in control of the defenses now, he placed his two Australian brigade groups among the areas the Japanese were expected to come. They were supported by anti-tank units and four artillery regiments. As for the 45th Indian Infantry Brigade, that was sent to the West Coast to check the advancing Imperial Guard. Knowing his overall position was an unenvious one, Bennett fell back on the same plan that had been tried, with some success, on the first day of battle. He would ambush the enemy's lead elements just west of Gamas, along the bridge there. This would hopefully clog up the roads, give the enemy many wounded to deal with, and perhaps, as had happened because of the misfortunes of the 11th Indian, lower morale among the entire enemy army. On January 14th, in the afternoon, the Japanese came, in the form of tanks and troops on bicycles, down the main road. And as they attempted to cross the Gamanche Bridge at the place Bennett predicted, everything the Allies had that was close enough opened up. Soldiers on bikes started falling over. Tanks came to a stop. But the intensity of the defensive fire did not let up. Soon the invaders were backpedaling, some literally as they strove to get out of the enemy's range. As all became quiet, reports were sent back to headquarters. The Australians claimed to have inflicted between 140 and 600 casualties, dead or wounded. However, the Japanese report said 70 dead and 57 wounded. Either way, it was a success for the Aussies, right out of the gate. Morale went up, and Bennett felt justified. And more good news, the bridge itself was destroyed during the ambush. All this had cost the Australians one dead, nine wounded, and six captured. But the Japanese had been in this same situation several times since coming to Malaya, rushing headlong into a well-defended area, losing more men than they should have, only to back up and evaluate the road ahead of them, as well as the fields on either side. Early the next day, January 15th, the Japanese came again, this time to the west of the bridge attacked the day before. In truth, its destruction was not as complete as reported, and before the day was over, the Japanese would move closer to the bridge, their engineers covered as repairs were made, and their tanks crossing over before the sun set. As for the west-flanking attacking units, they came face-to-face with the 45th Indian Brigade, which was new and only partially trained, before being sent to Malaya and thrown to the front line. Fortunately for the Green Defenders, they were standing on the south side of the Muar River. The Indian troops of the 45th Brigade gave a good account of themselves. The enemy before them did not cross over. 
then again, they weren't trying to. The attack was a diversion. Because at the same time, another Japanese unit had made an amphibious landing just behind the 45th. The untried and untrained Indians were caught in a vice. It would take some time, but the 45th Indian Brigade basically ceased to exist after all was said and done. Its commander, Brigadier H.C. Duncan, and all three of his battalion commanders died that morning. About 400 men survived this initial attack, but most of them would be captured by the Japanese. Yet the survivors' hellish nightmare wasn't quite yet over. As for the Australian battalion of the 27th Brigade guarding the Gamenche Bridge, they had repulsed three attacks before hearing that their left flank, covered by the 45th Indian Brigade, was crumbling. So these men would fall back and leave much of their equipment behind. The Allies and their commanders were being reminded of the old adage, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And the Indians had not been trained in most basic defensive tactics, like recognizing a feint. Much of their time had been marching like soldiers. Like at Slim River, the battle for the most northern part of Johor was over. As the 45th Indian Brigade was being cut to pieces, Bennett sent two Australian infantry battalions to assist them. But by the time they got there, most of the Indian troops were dead. Still, the Australian anti-tank gunners managed to take out nine enemy tanks, which gave the enemy in front of them pause. Now the surviving Indians and the newly arrived Australians had to worry about the enemy behind them as they tried to retreat. Their retreat, which would last four days, actually helped the most northern Australian units retreat from their position as it became the focus of the Japanese. But in all, the front was falling apart. The center had been pierced, and the west flank, from the coast to the center, was being pushed back, just as fast as the Japanese could move. Back to the Australians and the survivors of the 45th Indian Infantry Brigade, as they fought their way to the southeast, they came upon another bridge. Hopefully they could cross over, then destroy it, which should give them more time to get away. But between the enemy's amphibious landing and the hard-driving Imperial Guards, who had been coming down the coast, that bridge at Sarit Sulong was already in enemy hands. The Australian and Indian troops, now called Moir Force, for the river they had been assigned to protect, got a new order from their commander, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Anderson. It was every man for himself. Some of the men ran for the jungle, others for the nearest rubber plantation, while others still made for the swamps, thinking the enemy would stay clear of those. As for the wounded, the every-man-for-himself order went for them too. Some 135 to 300 men were left behind, who soon were in Japanese hands. Though the Japanese had to stay on the enemy's tail, a few days later their captives from the Australian 8th Division and the 45th Indian Infantry Brigade were dealt with. First, the POWs were beaten 
as their very capture, per the Japanese mentality, meant that they were unworthy to live. Some were tied up with wire and then gunned down. Others had petrol poured over them instead of flame. Still others, according to local accounts, were tied together in a group, made to stand on the side of the bridge. Then one of them was shot and, falling over, dragged his comrades down with him to the river below. Incredibly, Lieutenant Ben Hackney of the Australian 229th Battalion faked his death. He was lying under a pile of men who had been shot and crawled into the jungle. He crawled because both of his legs had been broken by rifle butts. Six weeks later, he was recaptured and put into a POW camp. Later, he would be forced to work on the Burma Railway, but survived the overall war. Later, he and a few others told war crimes investigators their stories. By January 22nd, the survivors of Muar Force had reached southern Johor. Still, the Allies had just lost another 3,000 men, including one brigadier and four battalion commanders. The 45th Indian Brigade was down to just 400 men. With the center and left flank shattered, the right flank fared no better. The Japanese 18th Division, which had been pushing just as hard on the east coast, took Endau on January 20th. In fact, they kept pushing the Australians back all the way to Mersing. But there, the defenders managed to hold out as their artillery served them well. In part, the Japanese were exhausted as they had been fighting on the east coast since landing. To help his tired men, General Yamashita planned another amphibious landing behind the stubborn Australians, but the setup would take some time. Going back to January 18th, GOC Malaya Percival was already thinking of leaving Johor altogether and focusing on Singapore, as it was his ultimate job to hold the island. So on January 20th, when Endau on the east coast was lost, and the Allies were still pulling back in the center and on the west coast, he ordered West Force to pull back to a new defensive line, from Mersing on the east coast, still in Australian hands, to Patu Pehat on the west coast. But it was only 50 miles to the bridges of Singapore. That same day, January 20th, C&C Wavell flew into Singapore for a second time. His exact thoughts on the current situation were left unsaid, but he told Percival to hold out as long as he could in Johor, to give their reinforcements time to land in Singapore. But his thinking must have been, if they hold out, great. If not, then at least the reinforcements would not be directly harassed as they landed in Singapore by the sacrifices made in Johor. The next day, the 21st, the Chiefs of Staff and Churchill himself made it clear that Singapore was not to be lost until there was protracted fighting among the ruins of Singapore City. By now, this new defensive line was being attacked along its length. It was simply a matter of numbers. 
On January 25th, the leftmost position at Batu Pahat was overrun by the Imperial Guard. As before, this threatened to cut off the retreat of the center part of the line. The next day, on the east coast, additional troops from the Japanese 18th Division landed at Endau at 11 a.m., and they were ordered to charge the line at Mersing. This coming hammer blow on the far right defensive link warranted an air attack. So at 3 p.m., several wildebeests, a large biplane used for light bombing, escorted by hurricanes, went after the transport ships to stymie any further landings. Yet the ships got through, and five wildebeests were lost. The hurricanes, though superior to the Brewster Buffaloes, were no match for the more nimble Zero fighters. It didn't help that the hurricanes were loaded down with 12 instead of 8 machine guns. Yes, they packed a harder punch, but the extra weight was exactly what they didn't need going up against the Zeros. Still, this latest wave of fresh troops coming at Mersing could not go unchallenged. So after the failed air assault, at 4.30 p.m., the destroyers HMS Thanet and HMAS Vampire were sent out from Singapore to take on the troop ships and their escorts. But as speed was of the essence, with the two destroyers still en route, another air attack was launched at 5.30 p.m. This time, nine wildebeests and three Abacor aircraft went up, all escorted by more hurricanes. Like last time, the damage to the Japanese was little, and nine British planes were lost during the attempt. But on January 27th, the Royal Navy would get its turn at the enemy shipping. At 3.18 a.m., the Thanet and Vampire went after the Japanese cruiser Sendai and its six destroyer escort. Yet their main targets were the transport ships. Exchanging shells, dodging the Japanese destroyers, the transports Kansai and Kambara Maru were damaged, but managed to offload men and equipment. For this, at 4 a.m., HMS Thanet took a shot to its engine room, coming to a stop. About to be picked off, the crew found that they could not stop the water coming in. Thanet went under without the need of further damage. The vampire had tried to lay down a smokescreen, but as the Thanet could not get underway, it made no difference. Thirty-eight of Thanet's crew died, but sixty-seven survived to be picked up by friendly vessels. However, thirty-one others were brought aboard Japanese ships. In what air power the British had and used during the Battle of Malaya, by mid-January, they never had more than 74 bombers and 28 fighters, whereas the attackers, even at this late stage of the fighting, had 250 bombers and 150 fighters. Back on the ground, with the defender's left flank overrun and its right flank under even more pressure from the newly arrived troops, the center prudently pulled back as to not be cut off from further retreating. Altogether, this forced Percival to tell his staff of his plan to pull back to Singapore. 
starting on January 24th, as both the center and left flank were already pulling back. The defenders began, to the best of their ability, a general retreat to Singapore Island. The 11th Indian Division pulled back via the West Coast, but the 15th Indian Infantry Brigade was surrounded near Rengit, also along the West Coast. Yet they would hold out until the survivors were evacuated by sea between January 28th and February 1st. The 28th Indian Infantry Brigade and the 53rd British Infantry Brigade used the distraction of the surrounded 15th Indian to fall back to the island, crossing over during the night of January 30th. As for the center of the defensive line, the 27th Australian Infantry Brigade used the main road to stay one step ahead of the enemy's 21st Infantry Brigade. By staying calm and occasionally stopping to check the enemy's advance with well-concentrated fire, the Australians crossed over to Singapore at the end of January. It did not go so well for some of the men of the 9th Indian Infantry Division on the right flank. On January 28th, they came upon an enemy roadblock. The brigade commander, having had enough of the fighting, ordered his men into the jungle. They would make their way south, off-road. But after four days of dealing with Malay's jungle, they ran into another Japanese force in their path. By now, the retreating troops were down to only 350 men. They chose to surrender rather than try to outflank the more numerous enemy as the land narrowed along with it, their options. By the end of January, there was only one bridge left to Singapore, called the Causeway at Johor Bahru. It was 1,100 yards long and 70 feet wide. At 8.15 a.m. on the last day of January, the last British unit crossed over. Inexplicably, the Japanese 3rd Air Division now truly master of the skies over Singapore, did not attempt to bomb it, though they watched as trucks and vehicles of all kinds poured over, carrying enemy troops. Yamashita had stressed the importance of destroying the defenders before they reached the island. With the last unit over, explosives attached to the causeway were detonated. Ironically, the retreat had gone much better than any of the fighting, but the Battle of Malaya was over. The Japanese 25th Army had reached the end of Johor in just 55 days. Percival told the troops on the island, the Battle of Malaya has come to an end, and the Battle of Singapore has started. Today we stand beleaguered in our island fortress. Our task is to hold this fortress until help can come. Yet the defenses on Singapore were not as strong as they could have been. When the fighting had been at its most intense at Mersing, engineers had begged Percival to be allowed to build up the defenses there. His reply was a curt no, because, quote, defenses are bad for morale, unquote. He had the same attitude at Singapore.